0: tonight we're going to be in the sixth church out of the seven that we have been studying. So Lord willing next Wednesday we will cover the the seventh and move out of the churches into the things that take place after the church age in chapter 4. <clears throat> so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 and we'll go ahead and read tonight in verse 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and it's coming to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, so hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Alright, so as I said before, we're getting into the um, the sixth church that we're studying here, the church in the city of Philadelphia. Now, anybody know what Philadelphia means? Brotherly love. That's exactly right. This is the city of brotherly love. And so one of the things that I'd like to start off with is just a, a quick introduction, and I'm going to read it just out of the commentary on my study Bible right here about Philadelphia, and this is what it says. In appreciation for imperial reconstruction aid after an earthquake, Philadelphia was briefly renamed Neo-Cesarea or Caesar's New City. But Jesus promises His suffering church an infinitely greater name, the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Philadelphia lies near a fertile valley especially suited for growing wine grapes. Inscriptions from Philadelphia mention the worship of Zeus and Hestia and the Roman emperor cult was already present by the first century A.D. An inscription from a nearby town mentions a synagogue in that, in that town as well. Christians in Philadelphia later received a letter from the early church father Ignatius and they suffered during the martyrdom of Polycarp. And so here's some of the things that we learn from that. Philadelphia was another city that was very... Deep in um, emperor worship, that the the, the archeo- how do you say it archaeologists as they say it archaeologists that have uh, dug up the city today they still find inscriptions that talk about um, the Roman emperor and their worship toward him. That's what the Roman imperial cult was. It was a a cult of people that worship the Roman emperor as a god. And if you remember from previous studies, what happened to people if they did not come and offer incense and make the statement out of their mouths, they had to confess, Caesar is Lord. They were, they were either shut out of the trade guilds and they couldn't work for a living or they were brought before the games and they, if the people called for their heads, they they were um, offered to lions and different beasts in the um, arenas. Um, they were burned at the stake. They were roasted in, iron, in brass bulls. Uh, we talked about many different ways that they suffered and that history tells us about it. Another thing that we saw just there is that we also know that there was a synagogue in this place. And we know just from reading the book of Acts that the Jews were one of the major enemies to Christians, correct? Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Yes, the Romans were the ones that he was always in jail with and chained to, but the truth of the matter is God put him there to protect him from who? The Jews, they were the ones that were seeking to kill Him. They were the ones that were trying to accuse Him of worshiping a God who is not a God that Rome had not approved of. And so they were the same way they did Jesus. When they came, the Jews brought Jesus before Pilate and they said, listen, He says there's another king besides Caesar. He says He's the king. And so again, there they go. They're trying to incite the Romans against Christians and Christ to begin with and later on through every Christian after that. So here you have another city. They have persecution coming from Rome because they will not worship Caesar as God. They have persecution coming from Jews who are coming against them and trying to incite violence from the Romans against them. And so that's just a little bit of context of what you're dealing with. Another thing that's happening here is we'll be able to read between the lines and see that the synagogue was the place that... When, when Paul first came into every city, and Paul, uh, uh, Robert I know this answer, But when Paul came into every city throughout the book of Acts, where was the first place he went to? To the synagogue. And he always went to the synagogue. And when it was time for them, they would ask the question, does any of the men here have a word that they would like to speak? A word of encouragement, a word of inspiration from the Scriptures? Paul at that time would stand up and he'd start preaching Christ from the Scriptures. Well, in in this context, if the Jews decided to kick somebody out of the Scripture, it was like them saying, you are no longer part of the promises of God. You are no longer adopted by God. You are no longer under the promises of God. Uh, You are cast out. Y'all remember the story, um, John chapter 8, I believe it is, where Jesus comes and He heals a blind man. Y'all remember that? And the blind man, they start questioning him. Who healed you? Who healed you? And he said, well, I don't really know who he was, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And ultimately, because he believed in Jesus, what did they do to him? They kicked him out of the synagogue. All right, And then Jesus comes in and he tells them a story. He says, I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I am the one that... Either somebody comes into the fold of God or they're not welcome into the fold of God. And ultimately what Jesus told these Jewish Pharisees was just because you kick somebody out of the synagogue does not mean that they are not part of the fold of God. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And that was the whole point of that. Go back and read it for yourself. When you read John chapter 8 and go into John chapter 10, that whole section right there is about the, the Pharisees kicking a man out of the synagogue and saying, you're no longer part of the people of God. And so this is what they're dealing with in this context here. So in Roman in Revelation chapter three, verse seven, he says, "This is to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And as we have studied in other churches, that angel possibly could mean a literal angel that is that God has put over this church. I believe, in a a more likely interpretation would be that he's talking about to the messenger of that church and whoever it may be. Maybe it's the pastor of that church. Maybe it's somebody who's delivering this letter to this church in Philadelphia. But it is whoever is going to take this letter to this church is what I believe is correct. And here's what he says. The introduction first. These are the words of... The Holy One. Now this is where a good word study would come in. and This is where if you had a Strong's Concordance or if you have an app like I've mentioned many times, Bible Hub is a good app that you can click on this verse. You can go up and click on Strong's or S-T-G I think is the initial for it. And you can click on that and it will actually pull up the original Greek words. And when you go and you look at what the original Greek words were, we get the Holy One. We learn that it comes from a word that means to be set apart from all. Now again, think about the context. We're dealing with people who worship Zeus, people who worship other Roman gods, people who um, are caught up in the worship of, of Roman emperors. And so all of these are supposedly gods. But the way that he introduces himself to this church as he comes on the scene and he says, these are the words of the One that is set apart from everything and everybody. There is no one like this One who is speaking these words to you right now. Excuse me. So he is the Holy One. The next word he says is these are the words of the True One. And again, in a word study, you find out that this is the one that means the genuine one. When he says true, he's not just meaning the one who speaks truth. He means the one that is genuine. So you have people that are claiming Caesar is Lord, correct? But is Caesar Lord? No, he's not Lord. You got people that are worshiping Zeus. Is Zeus a real God? No, he's a fake. And so what I believe you're seeing here is an introduction to these people that just reminds them, I'm the one that is set apart from everybody else and I am the one that is genuine when it comes to God. So you grabbing me a water. Thank you. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. And then next he says that he is also the one who has the key of David. Now, one of the things that I've been trying to teach you in here is what, what is one of the ways that we can interpret Scripture? We can use what to interpret Scripture? It's use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? So if we're going to do that, one of the places that we would want to look is somewhere else in the Scriptures that mentions the key of David, Right? And so let's see what Jesus is talking about when he says he's the one who has the key of David. Look at Isaiah chapter 22 and hold your spot in Revelations. We're coming right back to it. Thank you. Isaiah chapter 22. We'll start reading in verse 15. All right, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come and go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. And there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station." In that day I will call my servant Eliakim the son of Hilkiah and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the honor, the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring, and issue every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down, and it will fall." and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Now, let me just explain to you what's going on. Shebna is David's um, he's David's main man. He is the man that has been given the authority to access to David, and he has the authority to all of the royal treasury. He is the one that has the key. No one gets into the king or into the king's treasury except for the one that holds the key of the house of David. Shebna is the man. Shebna has now taken on it in his own heart to hew out a a tomb in the tomb of the kings because of the authority that he has had from David And now he has took it on himself to put himself in a position that when he dies, he belongs in a king's throne. God comes on the scene, sees the pride in his heart, because what did Satan do? The exact same thing, right? Because of his beauty, because of his authority in him, he lifted up in his heart and said, I'll set my throne above the throne of the Most High. So here we have the spirit of Satan in Shebna. God comes along through the prophet Isaiah and says, Hey buddy, God's going to get rid of you because of the pride in your heart. And He's going to take the key of the house of David and He's going to put it on somebody else. Now ultimately, this is a prophecy that points to who? Jesus, correct? And so what we have here is a prophecy that says, the key to access to the king of kings, to David the seed of David, which is Jesus. The key with access to the royal treasure and all that the king owns, it is going to go to one who will hold it forever. Jesus steps up on the scene here in Revelation chapter 3 and what does He say to these people that are kicked out of the Jewish synagogue that are under Roman persecution? He says to them, first off, I'm the true God. First off, I am the only God that's set apart from every other God. And third off, I am the one that holds the key to the house of David. And notice what He says here in the end of it. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. In other words, Jesus says, I am the only way that anyone has access to the door of the king and the door of the king's treasury. If I open it, guess what? Nobody shuts it. Not the Jews, not the Romans. If I open this door, nobody can shut it. If I close this door, is there anyone that can open it? So if I open this door, you get access to the king, You get access to the kingdom and you get access to all the kingdom's treasures. If I close this door, you have no access to the king. You have no access to the kingdom and you have no access to the kingdom's treasures. But look at what he says in verse 8. I know your works. And here's where we get into what I say promises. Because every one of these after this, there's no condemnation. You don't find anything wrong in this church. Now most every other church, he's found something that was wrong, right? And I'm talking about churches who their their pastors were the apostles. Trained up by Jesus Christ himself. And yet he found something wrong with them. But in this church, he don't. He just gives promises. So in verse 8, notice he says... I know your works, And then he says, behold. In other words, look at this. That's what it means to behold something. Look at it. Behold, I have set before you... What? An open door. door. And what happens if he opens the door? So the first promise to them is this. No matter what these Jews do to you, No matter what these Romans take away from you, because many of them, all their goods were being plundered and they lost everything they owned. Many of them were kicked out of their trades, not able to do their work, not even able to feed their families. And he looks at them and he says to them, Guys, look, I have set before you an open door. I have the key to the house of David. And if I open this door, no one, will shut it. A Roman won't shut it. Um, A Greek won't shut it. You will not have a Jew that will come by and shut this door no matter what they kick you out of, no matter what they take away from you. No one can shut this door. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now see, a lot of people interpret this verse. This is where context, I believe, is so huge because a lot of people interpret this verse as a verse of evangelism. That that's what this is. I have set before you an open door. In other words, a door that says... Because there are many verses in Scripture that do describe um, opportunities for evangelistic efforts as open doors. Paul said many times, God has set before me an open door to to go here and to go here and to go here and preach the gospel. And so we do see that. But I don't believe that's the correct interpretation in this case. Why? Because of context. Because everything else has been about Him having the key to the house of David. Because when you go back to Isaiah, you see the exact same thing that Jesus just quoted. He had the key to the house of David, which if somebody opens it, no one shuts. If somebody shuts it, no one opens. And here we have Jesus coming on the scene saying the same thing. And so to me... Context tells me that what he's talking about here is the door to being God's in God's kingdom. And he has set before them an open door. That's what I really believe here. What Jesus is doing is really just encouraging this church by laying out promises in front of them. Jesus Himself, the true one, the holy one, the one who has the key, says to them, I've opened the door for you. And if I open the door, no one will shut it. Y'all see that? And so I believe that's the right interpretation here. Now if you go on to the next part of it, he says, I know that you have but little power. Now this is again where another word study comes in handy. If you were to go to the Strong's and look up where we translate it, you have but little power... He's actually talking about, you can translate it, I wrote it down here, strength, might, um, ability to perform. So he looks at this church, and this is probably not a church that has fantastic teachers. This is probably not a church that has a plurality of, of pastors. Pastors. This is probably not a church that is able to, to give a whole lot to, um, to evangelistic efforts and able to support missionaries. And this is probably a church that the truth of the matter is they're probably a small church. They're probably what looks like an insignificant church. That they're really not able to do much. And Jesus looks at them here He says, I know that you have... Little strength, but you need to understand something. It's not their fault. He doesn't. This is not a condemnation. This is a commendation. He says, "I know that you have very little ability to perform." I know it actually comes from a Greek word that is dynamis. I believe is how you say it, where we get our word dynamite. He's saying, "I know that you have very little dynamite." And so really He's saying, you don't have a whole lot that can go boom. You have very little strength. You have very little ability to perform, but it's not their fault. Why? I mean, who's at fault here? Is anybody at fault? No. It's just the way that Jesus decided to design this church. Look with me at a few Scriptures. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. We spent a lot of time in Ephesians over the last few months. So you should be very familiar with this. But in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, notice what he says right here. Now he's been talking about the church and how the church is one. One body, one Lord, one baptism, one faith. But then, notice the first word of verse 7 is what? But. So here we have a transition. Even though you are one, and even though this is a single body, but, notice what it says next, grace was given to who? To each one. Grace was given to each one of us according to what? the measure of Christ's gift. So, I'm not the one who decided how how good a preacher or teacher I would be. I'm not. You're not the one that decided how, how good a servant you would be or, or how good a, um, a teacher you would be or, or whatever the case may be. It was according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gave grace to each individual one. And then notice in verse 8, Therefore, it says, and he quotes the Psalms, the scriptures here, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives that he had led them into freedom because we were bondage to sin, captive to the slavery of sin. And in that same time, he gave gifts to those men. And each one is given a gift according to the measure of Christ's gift. And now skip down to verse 11 with me. And here are some of the gifts. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, so on and so on. Y'all know the rest of it. Here's the point. Each church doesn't get to decide whether or not they had an apostle for a pastor or whether they had evangelists that went out from them or whether they had shepherds that that, uh, were of Timothy and Paul's status. They didn't get to decide that. Christ is the one that determines who gets what gift. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at another example. So again, they have little strength, but is it their fault? No, it's not their fault. It's just the way that God and Christ has decided that this church is going to be gifted. Now notice in um, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse um, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of those tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. And notice what he says next. Who apportions to each one individually how? As he wills. So, who determines what kind of gifts and what manifestation of those gifts is in each individual church? Christ does through the Holy Spirit. It's not Philadelphia's fault that they have but little strength. Christ is not condemning them here because because they're a, a smaller church and they don't have probably great teachers. And I say probably because I don't know if that's exactly what's meant here. But we know that the other churches, He commended them for their doctrine and for their teaching and for their uh, fighting against false doctrine, right? We don't see any of that here. Instead, we just see commendation. He says, hey, I know that you guys have little strength. But notice what He says next. And yet, I love those next two words. You have little strength, and yet you have kept My Word. You don't have a lot of great teachers. You don't have a lot of great preachers. (coughs) You don't have a lot of um, gifted people probably as the way we would see gifted people. But... You still keep my word and you've not denied my name. You stay faithful. You keep pressing on toward the mark, toward the goal. But I know you have little strength to be able to do this, little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now what? (coughs) Can anybody remember what the uh, parable of talents what what was the what was the somebody give me a quick overview of the parable of the talents? Well, God gave one man ten, one man five, and one man one. The man that he gave ten took his ten and made ten more. The one he gave five took his five and made five more. The one he gave one took his one and buried it because he said you're a bad. You're a shrewd boss, yeah. And I know you're harsh. So he took the one from the one that had the one and gave it to the one that had the ten. And And what did he say? What was his comment? When the master come back, what was his comment to the one that had ten? Well done. Well done, my... What was his comment to the one that had five and gained five? So same, same reward for both of those. Even though one gained him ten, one only gained him five. And what did he say to the one that took his one and buried it in the ground? And wicked servant. Yep, you lazy and wicked servant. You knew what kind of a master I was. So you should have at least took that one and went and invested it with the bankers so that I would at least get my one back with interest. In other words, you should have done something with it. (coughs) And one of the things we learned from that story and others is Jesus told us, to whom much is given, what? That's right. To whom much is given, much is required, much is expected. So that's what we get right here. They didn't have much, but even though they didn't have much, they were still doing much with it. They were still keeping His Word. They were still, um, they were still going out and, and, and loving people, loving the Lord Jesus. They were faithful to Christ, even though they had little strength, even though they had little power, as He says right here. And so that's important to us. What kind of context is that, do, or what kind of application does that, how does that apply to us today? What, what should we do with that? We should work as hard as we can for his glory. With what he's given us. Even if it's little or if it's much. But another thing I get out of this is, is this. If He's given you much, much is required. Much is required. And so I think we should take every little bit of strength that He gives us and do the best that we can with it so that we hear from Him just like He said He commends them here for taking the strength that He did give them and using it to keep His Word and not deny His name. Verse 9, Behold, and there again, look, here's another promise. Look, here's what I'm going to do. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, one of the things that we see in this is that this could be interpreted two possible ways. One way is that <clears throat> maybe he's talking about here that um, if well, let me let me put it like this. <clears throat> keep, keep reading with me. Look at verse 10. Notice what it says next. because you have what you have about patient endurance, right? What is patience? What is patience? <laughs> right? But what is it? When you need to be patient, why do you need to be patient? What's happening? You need to stay calm and think about what you doing and what you want to say. All right? So, patient endurance in keeping his word. Well, let's look at what one of the things his word was. Look at Matthew. Hold your place there. And look at Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 43. <clears throat> this is tough. This is tough. But this is what I believe that they were doing. All right, Because remember, they're being attacked from Romans. They're being attacked from Jews. They're being attacked from every angle. But notice what it says in Matthew 5 verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why, Lord Jesus? Well, what's those next two words in verse 45? Well, here's why. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Huh? Huh? That don't make sense, does it? Well, what's the first word in the next part? So here's why it makes you sons of your Father in heaven when you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. Right now, is it only the godly that get the sunshine? Is it only the godly that get the blessings in life? Is it only the godly that get the grace of God? No. He makes His sun rise on the good and on the evil. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We all get, there's a common grace of God that all of mankind get, even Hitler's. Even Hitler got grace. You say, well, why? That don't make sense. Because the Bible says it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the wrath of God in this world that opens our eyes to see that something's wrong. And it's the goodness and the kindness of God that we look at and say, even though we're sinners, He still does this. And we have both in this world. And so God in this time, in this world... Now, is there coming a day when He's going to keep giving grace to His enemies? No. That will one day come to an end. But right now, what does He do? His sun rises on the good, the evil. His rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's that's just the goodness of God. All right. And then look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you only, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this context, what does it mean to be perfect like God is perfect? Does it mean to be sinless? Is that what he's saying? In this context, what did he mean? He means let your sun rise on the good and the evil. Let your rain fall on the just and the unjust because that's what God does. And so, love your enemies. Now, if they're faithfully and patiently enduring in keeping His Word, guess what? They're doing this. This is tough because how many of us are are even a little bit good at this? We're not. Not at all. But that's why it's important that we understand that we are trying to be like our Heavenly Father. The truth of the matter is, this is not our way. My way is to love my neighbor and hate my enemy. That's my way. God's way, on the other hand, is a way of mercy and grace right now. And He says, you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. And that's what this church in Philadelphia is doing. They are patiently enduring and keeping His Word. So He tells them in verse 9, back up again, in Revelation 3, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Here's what He's saying to them. Don't quit. Keep trusting Me. Don't take vengeance out for yourself. Keep turning the other cheek. Keep praying for them. Keep loving them. Keep showing goodness to them. And I believe one of the things He's saying could be that the way He's going to make them bow at His feet is that they're going to see and they're literally going to learn that they are the children of God. And it will lead some of these Jews to be converted and they will come and bow at their feet to learn from them. Now that's one uh, interpretation of it. Another interpretation could be that one day every knee is going to bow. In other words, it's not going to be like this forever. You're not going to have to, to just bow down and, and take on the persecution of this world forever. There is coming a day when the Lord is going to quit being gracious to the enemies of the cross. And instead, judgment is going to take place. And on that day, every knee shall what? And profess and or confess that Jesus is Lord. And guess who gets to reign with him? We do. And if you and I are reigning with him, and every knee bows to him. Who else does every knee bow to? You're exactly right. And so I'm not not positive which way this promise goes, but guess what? I'll take it either way. I'll take it either way because it's still a good promise. But I think when I looked at this and I asked myself the question, what application can I take from this? My question I asked myself is, am I patiently enduring to keep His Word? Because the truth of the matter is I fall so short in areas like that, I won't even hardly suffer an offense from one of you. Right? How many people we know just quit church that fast because somebody hurt their feelings? But yet we think we could be like the church of Philadelphia and endure Roman persecution and endure um, Jewish persecution and pray for them and love them. And so my application to this is that I need to really be paying better attention at how I treat those that don't treat me well. At what I do for those that are supposedly my enemies. How I pray for them. How I show goodness toward them. How I let my sun shine on the good and the evil. How I let my rain fall on the just and the unjust. And I patiently endure. I patiently endure. Because the promise is one day they'll bow at your feet. And He says, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet. And then they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, Because you have kept My word about patience and patient endurance, I will keep you (coughs) from the hour... Of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so here's what he says. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I'm promising you that I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. That simply means a period of time. It don't mean a literal hour, but a period of time that a trial is coming and it's coming to try all of those who dwell. What does it mean to try? Huh? To test. To test. In other words, there's a test coming to see how much you really trust Jesus, right? There's a test coming and it's going to come on the whole world. But these guys, because they have patiently endured and kept His Word... In other words, here's what I believe you see here. Because they passed the test already, they've already proven their faith. And if you've already passed... Y'all remember back in in school, anybody in there ever get exempt from the finals? Now I can't raise... Oh, look at it. Now is he telling the truth? All right, all right. I believe you. I believe you. So there are some people that because they did their work through the year, and they made good grades through the year, they proved that they didn't have to take the final. Why didn't they have to take the final? Do what? (laughs) Well, most of them knew that if they had done well all the way through the year, then there's no need to give them the final because guess what? They've already proven that they know the work, that they can do it, right? Well, I believe that in this same context, that's what you see here. He tells this church of Philadelphia, he says to them, because you've already... Listen, I believe that if we live a life... And this is where I believe he is talking about the rapture, I believe personally. I believe he's talking about the, the hour of trial being the period of time that the tribulation is coming on the whole world. Now again, that's up for interpretation. We could be wrong in that. So I'm not going to sit here and be dogmatic about it and say this is the rapture. I personally believe that it is. I believe he's saying that because as Christians, you have proven that your faith is genuine, then when the tribulation comes, I am going to keep you from this hour of trial. Now in the immediate context, I believe it could also be talking to Philadelphia about a specific trial that's coming on the the world of Asia, maybe. You know, the Bible talks about the whole world and many times it was talking about, like for instance, whenever um, the riot arose in Ephesus, I believe it was, the silversmiths came together against Paul. You remember what they said? They accused them of. They said, these men are doing what? Turning the world... Upside down, you remember that? Well, were they literally turning the world upside down? No it was their world, right? And so, in the Bible, we see places to where when it says the whole world, it could be talking about the whole world of Ephesus or the whole world of Philadelphia or the whole world of Asia Minor or the you know whatever the case may be. I do believe that here because at the end of it it says if you have ears let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and so ultimately we see at the end of every one of them there's an immediate context and then there's a context that goes to to all the churches to anyone that has ears and so i believe that immediately we can interpret we can interpret this and say that this is to the church of Philadelphia for a particular trial that they may be going to endure and He's going to save them from. Or He looked at Satan and said, no, you can't do this and He protects them from it. And in the in the future context, I believe He's talking in the church in general that He's going to save us from the hour of trial. Now again, I know that could be... A little sketchy, but I do believe that that's how we... And the reason I say that is when you get to chapter 4, the church is gone. Once we get past Laodicea next week, you don't see the church on the earth anymore. All you see is the church in heaven. That's it. You still see people being saved, but the church as a gathered body of believers, they're gone. You don't see them again until Revelations chapter 19 or 20, I believe it is. All right. Let's see if we can wrap it up. Now, in verse 11, we get the next promise. What promise is that? So again, do you see how every promise is encouragement telling this church, hold on, keep doing what you're doing, keep patiently enduring, don't quit. I know you got a lot in the world stacked against you, but do not stop. And then he finally comes with this promise I'm coming soon. It's not going to be long. It's not going to be long. Now we have the command I'm coming soon, so do what? What does he want this church to do? What does that mean? Hang on. Don't quit. Because how many people do quit? Go back and read the parable of the souls. Very few hang on and plant it in good soil. Trials and tribulation of this world arise and choke the Word up. Cares of this world and riches of this world get in the way and choke the Word out. There are so many things that come and try to snatch the Word of God away. So he says here, hold fast. And then notice what he says next. Hold fast what you have. You may not have everything. You may not have it all together. You may not have it all right, but guess what? You can hold fast what you have. You can hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And then notice what he says in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar was a a prominent member or a support. So here he says... The synagogue and the Jews and the Romans say, you're a nobody and you're a nothing and you're worthless. But the one who conquers, I will make him a prominent member in the kingdom and the temple of our God. That's a beautiful promise right there. And then he says, never shall he go out of it. Again, these synagogues have probably kicked them out. These trade guilds have probably kicked them out. They've probably been kicked out of everything except their faith. And here He says to them, never, once you're a prominent member in the the temple of God, never shall He go out of it. Why? Because next, because I'm going to write on Him the name of my God. What does it mean when you sign your name to something? When you sign your name to something, it's like ownership of it, right? Right? It's got my name on it. When I signed the title to my car, what does that do? It says, I own it. Signed the deed to my house. I own it. Signed the deed to my land. That's mine. And here He just says simply, you're not going to go out of this because I'm going to write on Him the name of my God. I'm going to write on Him the name of the city of my God. I am going to write on Him the name of the New Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and I'm going to write on him my own new name. In other words, you've got so many names written on you that declare who you belong to and where you belong, nobody will ever be able to look at you and say, you don't belong here. Verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, one quick question and we'll go home. How does all this apply to you tonight? What does this mean to you? What do you take from it? Huh? Love other people the way that Christ loves you? What else you take from it? Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. That's right. Mm -hmm. So even if you have little or you have much, take what He's given you and do the best you can with it. Patiently endure. Hold on to what you have. You may not have it all, but hold on to what you have. Anybody else? What Christ gives you No one can take away. If He opens that door for you, nobody can shut it. Nobody can shut it. All right, any questions tonight? Thank you all for your time, your attention. Next week we'll do the last church of Laodicea and then we'll jump into the heart of Revelations and have fun with it. I think you all get a lot out of it.